Well, about 40 years ago, a well-known psychoanalyst and leading philosopher, social philosopher, Mick Jagger, um, (laughs) you know where I'm going, in his famous uh, essay on modern culture, bellowed out the words, I can't get no satisfaction, and I try, and I try, and I try, and I try, I can't, I'm going to stop there, you're going to start singing. Um, (laughs) I don't want that tune in your ears and humming it the rest of the time. But, you know, that song so echoed the voice of our times that it was voted the second greatest rock and roll song of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. Now, I'm not endorsing the group or the song at all, but I do think that the Rolling Stones gave, despite the poor grammar, they really gave in one line an accurate assessment of man's pursuits. They really did make the battle cry of human existence, the need for satisfaction, and the inability to obtain it. You know, more and more we've given free reign to our feelings and to our desires to find that satisfaction. And when these desires are consistently fed, they lead to addictions, what our modern culture has called addictions, habits that seem to control us. And as a result, our society is is overrun with addictions of every kind. I found on the National Institute on Drug Abuse, a study that they did last year, they found over 45 million people in the U.S. used hard drugs. 57 million people called themselves binge drinkers, with over 20 million dependent on alcohol. That's just in the U.S. 60 million were regular smokers. And these aren't the only addictive pursuits that we have available to us. Technology has opened up whole new doors. Stanford University They did a study last year, and they found that nearly 5 million people spend almost two hours a day on pornography sites. More than that, there are many people in our culture who spend at least six hours a day on Facebook. And I need to confess, I have a Facebook account, too. Um, But I'm not on it six hours a day. Text messaging has become an all-consuming pursuit, particularly for our young people. One kid in New York... I had found had 12,000 text messages in one month. That's 400 a day. And the problem was that they didn't have unlimited messaging. <laughs> yeah, uh, sure, that conversation with Dad was a little interesting. But, uh, you know, addictions are what we use for escape, for comfort, for enjoyment, meaning, to fit in, to avoid loneliness, to numb the pain, a release for anger, self-pity gain confidence, and they usually don't just happen, but they do take some time and effort. And after a while, they become something that we can't live without. You've been there? Perhaps you're there right now. Or perhaps you're there and you don't even know it. Maybe you become attached to something that has taken a hold of you and and like cancer is going on unnoticed until it's too late. Or maybe others of you thinking that, you know, that uh, none of that describes me. I'm not under the control of any substance. I've never used drugs. I, I don't drink alcohol except on rare occasions. I, I, uh, you know, I don't smoke. I, I do eat, but I'm not hung up on it. Um, you know, I only watch a little bit of TV or, you know, I don't look at pornography. But you need to remember something. Where do addictions come from? And they come from sinful desires which arise from the heart. You know, Jesus talked about that, that that is where our deeds come from. And any of us in this room are capable, any one of you and me are capable of going down that road. 
You act like an addict any time that you seek solace or comfort or escape from trials or difficulties in anything other than God. You act like an addict when your highest form of enjoyment and satisfaction is in something other than God. You act like an addict when you deny the possibility that this could happen to you. Just how do you get over a sinful habit or addiction? What would you tell somebody that, that came to you and says, I, I'm struggling with alcohol or with the Internet or uh, with drugs? First thing you've got to understand is all of these things are not problems with the body. They are problems with the heart. The problem is not the pursuit of pleasure. It's what we pursue for that pleasure. When we get into a pursuit that includes something else other than God, that's when we get into problems. Is there a way out? Is there? You tell me. Right? We're going to look at Psalm 16, if you could start turning there, where David provides for us the solution to the problem of addiction, to the problem of the cry, I can't get no satisfaction. And it is there in Psalm 16 that we will see nine characteristics of the satisfied soul. Nine attributes of one who has found satisfaction in God. Psalm 16. Title is a a miktam or uh, likely an inscription of David. David wrote this. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good beside you. As for the saints who are in the earth, these are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out thy libations of blood, nor shall I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. David begins his poem as a prayer to the Lord, asking for protection. He says, preserve or or protect me, for I take refuge in you. And we know David was often on the run from his enemies all throughout his life. And he could have penned these words on one such occasion. But I think if you look at the psalm as a whole, it's a general call to God for being that protection and comfort all through his life. God, go with me because I put my trust in you. The key to understanding this psalm is to see the theme which David has woven all throughout the psalm. We see it in various phrases that he's given. I have no good besides you. I set the Lord continually before me. Yahweh is my portion and my cup. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Now where did David find his contentment and his satisfaction? How did he get through his trials without turning to booze or possessions or something else other than God? What kept him from spiraling into a self-destructive, addictive behavior? Well, he gives us the answer in the psalm several times. It is that he found satisfaction in God alone. God was his complete joy and contentment. He summarizes this right at the beginning of the psalm when he says, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. 
And what's interesting here, the words I said are actually literally in the Hebrew, you said. And it's actually in Hebrew feminine, you, that he's referring to. He's left a word out for us. And that word is his soul. Soul is a Hebrew noun that's also feminine. And what he's saying here is, oh, my soul, you said, you said, you are my Lord. And the importance here is he's doing, he's using a poetic device called elision. That is that he's left the word out on purpose because that should make us search for it. What is it that, what did he leave out? Why did he leave it out? It draws our attention to the fact that he is emphasizing here. This is coming from the very core of his being. He says, you, my soul, have said this. He's adding an emotional impact here. And we see this in several other places in the Bible. Psalm 42, where he says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become trouble within me? Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3.24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Or even in Luke 12, when Jesus is giving the parable of the greedy rich guy, and the guy's talking about filling up his barns, and he says, I will say to my soul, this greedy man says, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. So this is a common thing for people to talk to their soul or from their soul. And most Bibles have translated this as I said, but I think in doing that, they, they take out the poetic beauty of the psalm and, and they also water down the emphasis that David is trying to, to give here. And what is it that David's soul, what is it from the very core of his being that he's communicating to us that's critical to see? You can't miss this because it's the answer to addiction. It's the answer to the search for meaning in life. It is the answer to handle any trial or any circumstance that may come your way. David simply says, I have no good besides or outside or above you, God. My source of well-being, my happiness, my good fortune is you. There can be no lasting good found apart from you. Nothing outside of you. He's simply saying, God, you're it. You are it for me. His true satisfaction could only be found in God. And that is the answer to freedom from enslavement to a substance or a person or a feeling or some behavior. To do that, you must come to the point where you say, God is enough. God is enough. Like David, you need to affirm that there is nothing else in this life, no one else in this life that can give you comfort and rest like he can. He is the only one that can cause your soul to say, ah, and for it to last. Because, you see, when you take another hit, when you stare at another pornographic image, when you open your fridge to grab yet another snack, when you take another drink, when you pursue another relationship, when you turn to TV or movie instead of prayer to the Lord, when you believe that only you can only experience something other than God to give that comfort, you know what you're telling God in that moment? You are saying directly to God, you are not enough for me. You can't satisfy me. You cannot help. I need something else. Christian counselor Ed Welch said, If addictions at their root are all about who or what we are going to worship, then Jesus Christ has got to become more attractive to you than any false god, such as drugs or food or sex. You know, and what's so crazy about the things that we turn to for joy is that we settle for so little. 
we find and accept that short-term rush, that quick surge of hormonal excitement, the brief and fleeting moment of temporary happiness. We substitute these temporary earthly pleasures when we can have God himself. It's amazing how small a, a dose of satisfaction that we're willing to settle for. I mean, it'd be like, uh, you know, one of those game shows where the person goes into that uh, plastic tube and there's all the money blowing around, right? And they get to stand in there for one or two minutes and whatever cash they can grab and, and stuff in their clothes and leave with, they get to keep. Well, imagine uh, a person in that situation where they, they come into that chamber, the clock's beginning to start, they go stand in there and the wind starts blowing, the hair's going everywhere, bulls are flying all around them and they go, well, look at that. A quarter. And it's Arizona. I don't have Arizona. <laughs> and they leave the chamber after about five seconds. What, what would you think about that person? I mean, what an idiot, right? He's got 20s, 50s, 100s floating around all around him, and he picks up a quarter. Well, we do that too with God. We settle for so little. But here in Psalm 16, David proclaims that there is nothing outside of a relationship with God that's going to bring any lasting meaning or happiness. And David here in Psalm 16 gives nine characteristics of the satisfied soul in verses 3 through 11. And these nine characteristics are attributes of the one who believes and embraces the truth that God alone is enough for me. That first characteristic that we'll see... And all of these, they're going to give you a barometer of where you're at and your contentment with God alone. How are you doing in each of these areas? And the first characteristic he gives in verse 3 of the satisfied soul is that he delights in God's people. He delights in God's people. David says, he speaks of the, the saints or the holy ones. And this term is typically used for angelic beings, but he adds the phrase here, on the earth or in the earth, to, to point our attention toward these are God's people who are on the earth. These are fellow believers. These are those whom God has chosen for himself and set aside for him. What's the attitude that David expresses towards these saints towards these fellow believers whom he calls the noble and majestic ones. He says, all my delight is in them. They bring me joy. I like them. I like being around them. I, I want to be with them. You see, somebody who's satisfied in God wants to be with others who love the Lord, who encourage them in their walk with Jesus Christ. Somebody who's satisfied in God looks forward to those times, looks forward to the fellowship, enjoys those relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, and I find it very interesting that this is the first thing that David draws our attention to after talking about being fully satisfied in God. Then he draws attention to, as for the saints who are in the earth, all my delight is in them. And he's showing us that we cannot separate our vertical relationship with God from our horizontal ones with other believers. It's, it's kind of like a cross, with the vertical and horizontal beams stuck together. And that is how it is. We see this in the two greatest commandments, right? Jesus Christ gives those in Matthew 22. He says the greatest commandment in all Scripture is what? To love God. And then right after that, he says the second is like it. To what? Love your neighbor as yourself. See, God doesn't separate those two things. You can't be fully right with God and at the same time be at enmity with a brother or sister in Christ. First John 4.20, John says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And again, here, this attribute is not simply someone coming to church or gatherings with other believers just because they have to be there. No, one who's satisfied in God enjoys being there. He or she thrives on the relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. And I just have one question. Is that you? Are you gathering with other believers here on Sunday or other times out of obligation? Are those moments just to be tolerated? Or... Can you say with David, all my delight is in them. The person who is satisfied in God delights in God's people. The second characteristic that David gives for the satisfied soul is in verse 4. And is there he says that the satisfied soul hates idolatry. He hates idolatry. And David expresses a, a loathing here for the worship practices and even those who practice those worships of false gods. He says, he talks about, he's not going to offer their drink offering, or maybe some of your Bibles say libation. What that that is, is the the pagan worshipers would typically pour blood in a vial or bowl or or a cup, and then take that blood and and pour it out all over the altar, all over the place, and then, in many cases, drink it themselves. And David says, I I don't want any part of that. I'm not going to participate in your false idol worship. And then he says, I'm not going to even take your name upon my lips. And he's talking about the worshipers there. He doesn't even want to associate with those who would put their allegiance with another God. He's trying to make that emphasis. And then he gives a very practical reason why we should avoid addiction. It's right at the beginning of verse 4. He says, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I think it would better read more literally as those who have paid the bridal price for another God will multiply their sorrows. That is a picture of addiction right there. Some translations say barter or or chase or hasten or run after. But the word there is used only of situations of a bridal price being paid a dowry. What he's saying there simply is David is painting this picture of an eager bridegroom going after the bride that he desires, and paying whatever it takes, a dowry to obtain her. And if you think about it again, that's an insightful description of addiction. What size dowry are people willing to give up to have what they want, to feed that desire? Estimates on the total money spent by drug users in the United States is, exceeds $100 billion annually for drugs and alcohol. With many individuals snorting, smoking, or drinking thousands and thousands of dollars on a yearly basis. And that doesn't even include the cost to society. Forbes magazine did a study back in 2006 where they, they tried to estimate the cost to society, to taxpayers, to businesses for, for drug and alcohol abuse, overeating and gambling. And they estimated that over $500 billion is lost in our society because of these problems. And that doesn't even include what people spend on various other habits. I, Ruth found for me a, a, an example in New Zealand last year that people spend over an average of over $5,000 a year for the New Zealand Psychic Hotline. In fact, one person spent over twenty five grand. People will give a lot for their bride, drugs and alcohol and food and gambling and Internet usage and, and even the New Zealand Psychic Hotline. And that cost is not only in money. See, David says that those who pursue other gods will multiply their sorrows. Sorrows is another word for pain, for trouble, for misery. In fact, the same word is used in Genesis 3, 16 for childbirth. 
The impact of our allegiances to something other than God is tragic. And I don't need to tell you, you may have even experienced the many situations where drug use or alcohol use and the devastation it does, not only to the user, but to the families. It is costly. I remember seeing um, uh, one time an interview. They were interviewing a man who had given himself over to extreme gluttony, and he weighed near 1,000 pounds. He was bedridden. He couldn't get out of bed for years or even leave his room because his body could not support the weight. And they were talking to this man, and I remember watching him weep. He was in despair because they'd ask him, well, are you dieting right now? And he says, I'm eating less than 1,000 calories a day, but my metabolism has slowed down so much I'm not losing weight. He was now held captive by the God he had paid so much to have. It was, it was sad to see him. He was devastated. But his multi, he had multiplied his sorrows. And when a person pursues satisfaction in life and anything other than God, he will multiply his sorrows. Because these false gods, they will not be appeased. They will not relent until they have taken everything from you. Ed Welch also said, when we stop and think, we realize that our desires, the the seeds of addictions, are not always as innocent as they seem. To put it bluntly, they lie. Their agenda is to get what they want now, and they will go to any lengths to get it. What they hide is this basic law, that the more we feed our desires, the bigger they become. At first, that doesn't make sense. If you feed something, it should be satisfied. But it does just the opposite. If we feed our desires, they become stronger. And what's so ironic is that, you know, these false gods, they demand a dowry. But in God's case, the one true God, it's the opposite. He paid a dowry for you. Jesus Christ spilled his blood to purchase his bride. That's you and me. God is enough, isn't he? The third characteristic of one fully satisfied in God alone is contentment in God's provision. Contentment in his provision. And we see that in verses 5 and 6. David says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. And the idea of inheritance and cup, he's talking about is uh, what he's been blessed with, the things that he needs to live. And he's saying, God, you're all I need. I don't need possessions or material blessings to be content. All I need is you. And how this fleshes itself out practically, we see in the very next verse where he says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And and line there is the word for a rope. And typically it's uh, ropes were used in order to measure out allotments of land. In fact, in Joshua 17, 5 and following, that exact same phrase was used in portioning out the allotment of land to the tribes of Israel as they went into the, the promised land. What he's saying here simply is that What God has given me, what he's lined out and apportioned for me, is great. It's pleasant. I like it. It's delightful. It is good. And do you see how these two verses work together? Where David's satisfaction, his contentment, comes from being satisfied in God alone. He first says, Lord, you are my portion of my inheritance. And by the way, what you've given me is beautiful. It's pleasant. Thank you. You see, if you're completely satisfied in God, then you will be content with whatever God has apportioned for you. Whatever lines he has measured out for you, you will be content with. You're not going to fret over the stock market and the huge, huge, huge drops that we've seen in the last year. You'll be at peace with not having a husband and wife or a wife if you're single. 
You'll be at peace with not having a perfect husband or wife if you're married. I married one, but my wife didn't. Uh, (laughs) You know, if God has chosen not to give you children, you're going to be okay with that. But I do need to add something that you can still have children, can't you? I encourage you to listen. Jeff and Maureen Learned, uh, they were on uh, the Frank Pastore show about a week or two ago talking about foster care and adoption. Great ministry. I'd encourage you to go in the archives and listen to that show. If God has allowed difficult circumstances in your life, if you're fully satisfied in Him, you're not going to worry. If God truly is your inheritance and your cup, then again, whatever lines He has apportioned out for you in this life, you will be able not only to be content, but like David, you're going to be able to say, it's beautiful to me. It is beautiful to me. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his excellent book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says this, The saints in heaven do not have houses and lands and money and meat and drink and clothes. You will say they do not need them. Why not? It is because God is all in all to them immediately. They don't need those other things. Does that describe you? Is God alone enough for you? And there's a lot more we could talk about here with being content in the Lord. Um, I encourage you to read that book by Burroughs. It's very good. Fourthly, a satisfied soul will love and apply God's word. As we see in verse 7, a satisfied soul will love and apply God's word. David says there, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. See, the idea of counsel there is advice or, or counsel. Um, instruction. And David says God doesn't leave us without direction or instruction. And where does it come from? Right? We don't need visions. We don't need God to speak audibly from the heavens. We, we uh, heard last week from a great message on how God speaks to us how. The living oracles have been passed down to us so that we have his word, Right? We don't need any of those special experiences. We just need God's word, his spirit working through his word. David said in Psalm 19 that God's word, the law of the Lord, restored the soul, enlightened the eyes, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart. And God has freely given us this counsel whenever we are willing to seek it. And David talks about he meditates in the nights, literally nights, all through the night at times, David would sit and, and think about and meditate and instruct himself on the counsel God had given. And the word there for instruct is more often translated discipline in Proverbs. Discipline or rebuke or admonishment. Kind of the idea or the picture there is David sitting in his bed and he's thinking about things that the Lord has taught or shown him. And he's saying, I need to do that. Or I need to, I need to stop doing that. Or Lord, help me in this area. Right? He's, he's, instruct, he's instructing himself through what God has told him. So rather than counting sheep, David uses that time before he falls asleep to his advantage. And I I think we can learn from his example here and do the same ourselves. Use the evening when there are no other distractions or things to take you away from your focus to, to contemplate, to think about the counsel that God has given you. One Puritan said, We have a saying among ourselves that the pillow is the best counselor. And there's much truth in the saying especially if we have first committed ourselves in prayer to God and taken a prayerful spirit with us to our bed. In the quiet of its silent hours, undisturbed by the passions and unharassed by the conflicts of the world, we can commune with our own heart and be instructed and guarded as to our future course. You see, the man or woman of God who is constantly satisfied in God will be meditating on what God has said through His Word. When God is enough for you, 
you will desire to carry out whatever instruction he was given and use every moment to to think and ponder and meditate upon that. The fifth characteristic of a satisfied soul is given to us in verse 8, where he says, I've set the Lord continually before me. And the idea of that is simply that David's saying, God's presence is always at the forefront of my mind. I have placed the reality of God's presence before me. The satisfied soul has God's presence as so much of a reality to him that if you see the next line of the verse, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I will not be troubled. I will not be caused to totter or to fall over. And what he's simply saying there is that, you know, the idea in Scripture of someone at your right hand would be someone to give you strength, someone to give you protection. It's like a bodyguard. So David is saying that if God is enough for you, you'll realize that no situation is happening outside of his control. No onslaught of Satan is going to take place with God not being right beside you. It gave him confidence as he contemplated and thought about that truth. Right in Psalm 139, David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. See, David practiced that presence of God in the way that he would call to mind continually that God is with him. Psalm 46, 1 says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present, ever present, always present time in trouble, help in trouble. How is it that you set God before you continually? Well, obviously, you need to be spending time with him on a consistent basis each day. You need to be rising up, talking to God. You need to commune with him all throughout the day, taking every moment or opportunity you can to interact, to talk with God, to give him your concerns or your cares, even in the midst of working or being busy at home. Listen to sermons and godly music whenever you can. Commute is a great time to do that. Put it on the stereo in your home while you're going about things during the day. Memorize his word so that you can bring it to mind. I, I like to do that. And then at times if I wake up in the middle of the night or as I'm going to sleep, I, I think about a passage and I, I, I go over it in my mind over and over. And as I fall asleep, it does great wonders for your dreams. You know, speak of him with your family. Talk to him as you fall asleep, as I just mentioned. The more time that you spend with him, the more you're going to realize and remind yourself that God's always here. He's at my right hand. I don't need to be troubled by the circumstances that come my way. God's there. And if they do come, just like that song that Rick sang earlier, sometimes he does calm the storm, storm, and other times he calms you because he's always at your right hand. That is the testimony of a satisfied soul. You will have a firm footing because God is at your right hand. Verse 8 gives the sixth characteristic of one who is content in God, and it's simply this, the satisfied soul will be joyful. Look at David's response where he says, Therefore my heart is glad, sorry, in verse 9, and my glory rejoices. He's talking about here his whole being is consumed with the thought of all that God has done for him. Everything that he's been reflecting on in those first eight verses hits him, and he says, I am just full of gladness and rejoicing. If God is enough for you, then you're not going to be depressed. You're not going to mope about your circumstances. You're not going to be full of despair and discontentment. If God is enough for you, you're not going to be angry that life isn't going the way you want it to. Instead, you'll be as David here. You'll be joyful. It's not a giddiness. That's a a happiness based on contentment. 
and relationship with God. You will have peace, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. You will be as Paul who, remember when he was in prison in Acts 16, and what was he doing in there? As he was sitting in that cell. He was singing, singing hymns. I mean, imagine the jailer who later asked him, you know, how do I get saved? But before that, he must have thought Paul had gone off his rocker. He said, then this guy needs to be in the loony bin, not here. What's he doing singing in there? And remember, prisons at that time were not quite as nice as they are today. And yet Paul was able to, even in that circumstance, express joy like David because he was content in the Lord. He knew God was his right hand. He knew that he was in there not because God slipped up. Oh, how did he get over there? Right? He knew that wasn't the case. And joy will fill your heart as you consider all that God has done for you and all that he is. And if that doesn't characterize you, then you need to ask yourself, am I truly satisfied in God alone or am I basing my joy and my contentment on something else? What is it that I'm basing it on? Verse 9 also serves as a transition in the poem. The last three characteristics of the soul uh, look ahead to the future. What he's talked about so far is what God has done for him in the present or in the past. But in the last two verses, he's going to talk about what God will do for him in the future. You see, David was human. He pondered the afterlife. You know, I may so many times a lot of the commentators I read how much they talk about David's concern that God would preserve his his life on earth, that God would protect him from being killed. And David's not so earthy as that. He was not thinking about this life. He was thinking about the next one. He knew that this life was not all there is. But you know what? David did not lay awake at night wondering what was going to happen to him. He did not fret about the future of his own soul. Because he shows us here the seventh characteristic of a satisfied soul is that he does not fear death. He does not fear death. Look at verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And Sheol here is the the place of the dead, the grave. David's not talking about God keeping him from dying. David's talking about the fact that one day when he did die, David knew that he would not die eternally. That God would not abandon or forsake him. Or his soul in the grave. And the person satisfied in God does not fear death because he knows God will not abandon him. God's promised that those who are his, when this earthly tent passes away, he will take your soul to be with him. You remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5? To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Right? Or what did Jesus tell the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. Right? That's the promise to every Christian, to every person that's placed their faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he has done for them on the cross. That person can have total confidence that when he or she dies, will be with the Lord. God will take his soul to be with him in paradise. If God's enough for you, you're not going to be so attached to this life. Yes, you will live here. You will carry out the responsibilities that God has for you. But you're not going to be so attached that you're basing your contentment and your joy and your happiness on what's here. This stuff doesn't matter. It's going to go away. You'll want to be at home. Just like David. He's thinking about that time when his soul leaves his body and God takes it to be with him. The eighth characteristic of the satisfied soul is also found in verse 10. We see it there that this eighth characteristic is that the satisfied soul hopes in a resurrected Savior. Hopes in a resurrected Savior. 
You see, David knew that God would not abandon his soul because he knew that God had made a provision of the coming Messiah. He says here, God will not allow his holy one to undergo decay. And holy one here means a faithful or a godly one. And there's some debate by scholars as to, is he saying a holy one, meaning himself, or the holy one, meaning the Messiah? I'm not going to go into explaining this verse in detail because Jack did in his Easter sermon last year, and I'd encourage you to go listen to that. All I want to do is I'll take you to one place where I think the Apostle Peter definitively answered what was going on in the mind of David when he wrote this, and that's in Acts 2. You can turn there for a minute in Acts 2. I want you to see this. Here, preacher Peter is preaching right at Pentecost, 10 days after Christ had ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes upon them as they're waiting in Jerusalem and the church is born and Peter gets up and he delivers a sermon indicating to the people who Jesus Christ was, who this resurrected man turned out to be. And in verse 25, Peter continues. He says, for David says of him, that is Jesus, I saw the Lord always in my presence for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Sound familiar? He's quoting from Psalm 16. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you with regard to the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Now listen here. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he would neither abandon his soul to Hades nor his flesh to suffer decay. You see, so in quoting Psalm 16, Peter says here, I think pretty clearly, that David was speaking prophetically. And one thing that prophets do is they speak about the future, right? David was looking ahead. And then Peter says that David knew that this was the resurrected Lord. This Holy One was the Holy One. And that is where David, as a satisfied soul in God, placed his trust that God would resurrect the Messiah, that God would raise up the Messiah, that he would be the deliverer. And the point I want you to see from this is that the satisfied soul trusts in a resurrected Savior. You will have a hope in heaven Because Jesus Christ gives that hope. You will have a hope in the one who makes heaven possible. Because without the resurrection, there is no hope, right? Paul indicates that in Acts 17. When he's talking to those in Athens, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should be repent, because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed by raising him from the dead. And as a result of that resurrection, David then moves to the ninth characteristic that we see in verse 11 of this psalm. And that is that the one who's satisfied in God will long for eternity with God. He or she will have his or her mind on heavenly things rather than earthly ones. David says, you will make known to me the path of life. And what he's talking about here is life from here on out and into eternity. Again, David wasn't so uh, earthy that he was just thinking about wanting blessings in this life. That goes against the whole point of the psalm. He's saying, I'm looking forward to that day. You're going to show me how to live this life for you and how to live the next life for you. You've given me eternal life. 
And what does that life consist of? He talks about it in the last two lines of the poem. He's reaching a climax here where he says, In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. Those words mean exactly what they say. The idea of fullness here is uh, satiated, overflowing, stuffed. It's kind of like after that turkey dinner you're going to have on Thursday. You're going to have so much that you won't be able to fit in another crumb. At least that's my plan anyway. (laughs) You're going to be satiated, stuffed. And in God, he's saying, you'll be stuffed with joy. You'll be overflowing with pleasures and delights that never, ever end. He's saying right here, here it is. Soak this in. Here is what you have been looking for your entire life. David lays it out right here. This is what you've been looking for. Pleasure and joy to the utmost, right? Never waning, never ending. And he says, God is that source. God is a source of pleasure. And many people seem to think that God doesn't want us to have pleasure. They seem to think that he's trying to keep it from us, that he's given us a a book with rules and laws to keep us from this and that and the other thing. Don't do this. Don't do that. Stop this. I think a lot of people think that, but they just don't get it. He's not trying to keep you from pleasure. He's trying to keep you from seeking pleasure in the wrong things, things that will not satisfy you. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He, he wants to give you pleasure. He wants to give you enjoyment. He wants you to be full of joy and gladness, no matter what happens. He wants it to be bursting out of your ears, out of your nostrils. He wants you to be satiated with it, to enjoy him, fullness of joy, pleasures forever. God wants that for you. We're all built with a longing in our souls, right? We have an understanding that there is more to this life than living and dying. We were created to be worshipers. We were created to enjoy, to enjoy our creator. Jesus stands with arms open wide, ready to satisfy, ready to give you that deepest hunger and longing for your souls. And he says it over and over. While he was on this earth, how many times did Jesus talk about this? He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. He says, is anyone thirsty? Come to me and drink. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus said, whoever drinks the water that I shall give will not thirst. I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus continually offered that over and over. And what is he saying here? He's saying, don't seek fulfillment anywhere else. I have it. It's me. It's me. Come to me and you won't thirst again. You won't hunger again. Your soul will be at rest. I am enough. I'm enough. The true meaning of life is found in Jesus Christ. God says to Israel in Jeremiah two, thirteen: for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and to hew themselves for themselves, cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that's the tragedy of addiction, right? It's that pot that's got holes in it and they're scraping and scraping for just a drop, but it keeps coming through. Because there's a hole in that pot. It's never going to satisfy. You're always going to be more thirsty than when you started, like drinking salt water. I mean, imagine yourself in a park, 
you take your kid with you to the park to, to play and you're, you're playing and, and your child trips on something and falls over and hurts themselves. And as you approach your child, you have your arms open ready to receive that, that child. They're, they're crying. They need comfort and encouragement and, and you're standing there and all of a sudden some stranger walks up with a sucker in his hand. He says, here, here, take this. That'll make you feel better. So what would you think if your kid gets up, wipes away the tears, and they turn and they walk with that man? Right? Stop! What are you doing? He doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you. In fact, he only has evil planned for you. Don't go with him. Stop! Do not go. He cannot care for you like I can. And yet, you know what? That describes you when you don't run to your heavenly father. When you seek pleasure, comfort, satisfaction to find happiness in alcohol or crack or relationships or sex or the internet or food or meth, then you're running to the man with the sucker. There stands a loving father whose brow is not furrowed. He welcomes you with open arms and yet you as a hurting and burdened child, you run to the man with the sucker. Who, by the way, is Satan. And you know what? He would have for you when God stands with arms open wide and you turn to something else. What are you doing? What are you doing? Well, what you are doing is you're saying to God, God, you're not enough for me. You can't help me right now. You can't satisfy me. That sucker looks a little better. You know what? Don't settle for so little. When that sucker's gone, that's it. And then there will be multiplication of sorrows for you. But in God, if you make him your ultimate satisfaction, he's enough. He is enough for you. And if he is enough for you, then these nine characteristics that we've talked about from Psalm 16, they'll be present in your life. But if you've come to realize that God is not always your satisfaction, that he is not enough for you, or maybe never has been, you need to heed the words at the beginning of this psalm. The first two verses lay out for you what you need to do. You need to take refuge in God. That means to trust Him. That means to turn to Him. That means to place your faith in Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead, so that you might have eternal life through His death on the cross and payment for your sins. You need to place your faith in the true God and nothing else. Run to him, take refuge in him. David then says, you are my Lord. He's saying, I I submit to you, I repent, I turn from these sins of rejecting you and turning to these other things. Forgive me. I want you to be Lord of my life. I'm going to get off that throne and let you be the one. And then David says at the end of verse 2, you need to declare along with him, I have no good besides you. You're it, God. You're my only source of satisfaction and true joy. You know, in my first semester at seminary, um, during one of the chapel messages, uh, John MacArthur was uh, teaching, and he he told of a missionary couple that had been visiting uh, L.A. for a vacation. And this couple brought with them their two daughters and a son, along with two young men who were exchange students from Italy. And um, they had taken them into their family for a time in order to be able to share the gospel with them. Well, one day on this vacation, uh, for some inexplicable reason, uh, the father, with everyone in the car, pulled out into an intersection in a red light. A truck came at them full speed and and broadsided the, the station wagon. 
And the car was hit so hard that the the two girls uh, flew out of the vehicle and hit the pavement dead. The three boys were in... um, Injured severely and were in ICU. And the parents who were in the front seat were cushioned from the accident and weren't as in bad a shape. So when Pastor MacArthur arrived at the hospital, um, this is one of the few times I've seen John actually choke up as he was reflecting on what happened. And he said, uh, as he arrived there, he saw the father and he said, I, I don't know what to say. I, I really don't know what to say. What would you say? What would you say? And listen to what this man said. He said, well, John, the first thought I had was maybe this is a dream and maybe I'll wake up and this will be over. But he knew that wasn't the case. Then he said this, I brought my family down here because I wanted my daughters to have a big church experience because we come from a small church, but I didn't realize it would be this big. He said, I I wanted them to to be able to hear a big choir. He said, I I didn't think it would be a heavenly one. And then he said this, Isn't it good that God took the life of my two daughters to be with him, but he spared these two unconverted boys? Isn't God good? How was that man able to say that? Because to him, God was enough. God was enough for him. He was able to rest in the fact that his baby girls were at rest with the Savior and that God in his kindness gave these two boys another chance that he spared them so they might have another chance to hear the gospel and turn to Christ. Here was a man who could echo Psalm seventy-three twenty-five: Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart They may fail. I may lose my job. I may get cancer. I may be persecuted. I may not be able to have children. My girls may lie dead on the street. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is enough. Is he enough for you? Let's pray. Lord, What is there to say? You are enough. In you is fullness of joy. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us, God, when we don't pursue you, when we do not, Lord, just remind ourselves and take in these wonderful truths that you have given us all we need, that in you we can be fully content and satisfied. We don't need to look anywhere else. Lord, I pray if there's any in here who have... Lord, dipped into these broken cisterns of addiction. or Lord, that you would free them from that. That, Lord, you would open their eyes to see you are enough. You are all that they need. God, I, I thank you, Lord, that you can deliver us, even from things such as drugs and alcohol and, and so many other things, Lord, that we choose or to pursue. God, we thank you for the hope in Jesus Christ. We thank you that his death on the cross has given us freedom, if we would but turn to you and repent from our sin and trust you for salvation. Lord, thank you for the joy you give us in knowing you. We are so thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.